podcast devoted to discussions of how the biblical worldview transforms all of life. I'm Corey Barnes, and today we are continuing our discussion on early church history and how it informs the biblical worldview. Before we get going on our topic today, I want to spend just a moment discussing why we would talk about early church history in a podcast devoted to discussions of biblical worldview. Now, we talked about this a little bit in the first episode, but I just want to reiterate before we go into things today. What we're looking at here is we're looking at how have Christians sought to live biblically throughout history. And again, we're looking at both successes and failures. So there's times that we can look to Christians in the early church and we can say, wow, here's a way they're they're living biblically and engaging their culture, engaging their world and living faithfully in a way that we see prescribed in the scriptures and consistent with the scriptures. And then there's times where we look to the early church and we say, well, here's where they really drop the ball on that. And what we're going to do today, as we've been doing in previous episodes, is we're going to look at a, a period of early church history. Today, we're actually looking at kind of a controversy that begins to arise in early church history. And then we're going to analyze, okay, how does understanding that controversy inform the way we live out our faith today? This is good history. Good history should always help us understand the past, but understanding the past should point us towards understanding our future and understanding our present. So let's look at this today. So today we're talking about the apologists in the early church. Now, apologists are those who defend the faith. We're relatively familiar with that, especially in evangelical Christianity. In fact, you could say that apologetics is kind of an in vogue item in Christian study. A lot of times if you go to a college group or you go on campus at a Christian college or in a Christian youth group, you'll find that people are pretty familiar with apologetics. Well, what I want us to look at is what kind of things were the early Christians having to defend themselves against and what kind of teachings, what kind of strategies did they use in order to defend the faith. As we get into that, let's go through some major objections to early Christianity. I think we're going to see that those major objections were very different than the major objections that we would see to Christianity today, though we're going to see that the the way that the early apologists combat these misunderstandings are actually remarkably similar to the way that we see uh, apologetics being done today, or at least the need for apologetics today. So what were some of the major objections to early Christianity? We talked about these just a little bit uh, in the last episode, but let's look at them in more detail. Major objection number one was that Christians were cannibals. Now, I want us to think about this. It sounds a little bit odd for those outside of the Christian faith to understand what Jesus means whenever he says, this is my body, this is my blood, and that Christians go through this, this service of communion where they partake of bread that represents the body, and they partake of wine or juice that represents the blood of Christ. Now, we actually know that this becomes a misunderstanding within Christianity itself, and Christians continue to kind of uh, debate with one another on what the proper understanding of communion or the proper understanding of Lord's Supper is. But what we have in the early church is we see those outside of the church taking this in a radically uh, inappropriate direction, saying, well, this must mean that these Christians are engaging in acts of cannibalism. And so the general rumor is just, well, when Christians say they're eating his body and drinking his blood, they must actually be eating human flesh and drinking human blood. There's actually a, a really specific rumor that seems to be relatively widespread, especially in and around Rome, and that's a specific rumor that there was somehow a baby that was baked into the Christians' bread that they were partaking whenever they came together to celebrate communion in their worship services. So we see this 
false teaching, this this bad idea, misconception about Christianity. Number one, that they were cannibals. Number two, they had a an understanding. Those non-Christians tended to have an understanding of Christianity that saw Christians as immoral. Again, we talked about this some, uh, but there is a uh, number one, the, a misunderstanding based on Christians calling one another brother and sister. And so whenever they are calling one another brother and sister, they are supposing uh, that this brother and sister language is perhaps taken literally, and this becomes particularly disturbing whenever there are husbands and wives that are referring to themselves as brother and sister. So they think that there's inappropriate relationships happening here. Also, Christians call a common meal that they eat together love feast. This is actually referenced in the scriptures in Jude chapter 12, Jude makes reference to the love feast. And this is, uh, there, there's multiple opinions on what the, the love feast were. It's possible that it was associated with communion in some way. But there's, a, again, a misconception about Christianity that these love feasts are some type of uh, debauched ceremonies where, where there is just a lot of sin going on, a lot of immorality. So, number one, Christians are cannibals. Number two, they're immoral. And I would say specifically there, the accusation was they were sexually immoral. Number three, that Christianity is the religion of the ignorant. Uh, now, this is one that I think was probably most based on social class because the Christian church was not, at least according to biblical orthodoxy, divided into social classes. It meant it was particularly appealing to the lower classes. So let's let's imagine that for a moment. If you're in Rome, in Rome, now I want to say this, the first century Roman world or first three centuries and first three centuries AD in the Roman world, they weren't the most oppressive throughout human history. There was actually some stride forwards on some things. But in general, people were relatively locked into whatever social strata they were born into. And here comes Christianity. And who were the leaders early in Christianity? Well, in the first generation of Christianity, you have people like Peter and Andrew, who are fishermen that are leading this movement. So, you know, there's a, an understanding that Christianity is not divided into social classes. So who's likely to join on? Well, you're going to have a lot of people from the lower social classes. Not only that, but Jesus himself teaches that it's easier for those who are from lower social classes, who have less security in this physical world, it's easier for them to follow through in obedience to Jesus. So you have a lot of people from economically and socially lower classes that join the movement. And so those outside the movement begin to say, aha, this is just a religion of the ignorant. The people that follow this religion are really dumb. By the way, I, th I think we actually see that one uh, quite a bit in the world today. Um, another objection that was made is that Christians fear the gods they claim do not exist. In other words, that Christians are scared of the the gods of Rome, the gods of the greater culture. And the, the misconception here is that Christians' avoidance of false gods is taken to mean that they are somehow afraid of them. This is one that seems pretty shaky, but that is something that we find in some of the early writings in the first three centuries of Christianity. Here's one that sounds really odd to us, and that is the, the accusation that Christians are atheists. We actually find this quite often in the ancient world, uh, in the, the, the early days of Christianity, what we would call pre-Constantinian Christianity. We hear Christians written off as atheists. Now, we might say, wow, in our culture... 
we actually kind of consider the Christians to be the opposite of atheists. And we might say, how could they have said Christians are atheists whenever Christians clearly believe in God? Well, there's two reasons. One would be that Christians are worshiping one God. So rather than worshiping many gods, Christians are worshiping one God. And you can see how there's kind of a progression that they're understanding, those in outside culture, saying, well, if you got rid of most of the gods, maybe you're just getting rid of all of them. But there's actually a bigger reason here. And the bigger reason is, is there's a misconception about Christians, and Christians are called atheists, because they don't make idols. They don't make images of their gods, and they don't have an emphasis on building grand temples to their gods or making sacrifices to their gods. So in the Roman mind, and in the mind of most people in the what we would call the Greco-Roman world, the world in which Christianity comes into existence and exists in the first three centuries, uh, in this, this broader world, it's hard to perceive of a worship of a god without idols and temples and sacrifices. The next thing that we see, and this is again one that I think we can understand a little bit better, there's a, a misconception about Christianity that Roman, the Romans defeated the Christian God. Uh, imagine how strange it would be today if whenever we were representing our Christian faith, we wore a contemporary symbol around our necks that was equivalent to the Roman cross. We associate the cross with Jesus, and we associate the cross as Christians with the victory of the cross, that death was defeated on the cross. But imagine if that was still a contemporary means of execution. Imagine if we all walked around with little electric chairs tied to our necks. And if people said, why do you have that electric chair tied to your neck? We would say, ah, well, the, the God has incarnated himself and his son died in an electric chair. Do you see why that would be a little bit harder for society to latch onto? Because what you have happening at that point is you have people saying, well, if your God died on a cross, then he must be dead. And this is going to get into a, a central point of apologetics from the first century until now, that for anyone to understand the Christian faith, they have to understand not only the crucifixion, not only the death of Jesus, but the resurrection of Jesus. Here's the, the other one that, that, that's attached to this. There is a, uh, there's an accusation that Christians are willing to foolishly forsake the certainty of life for the uncertainty of resurrection. So whenever people see Christians that are willing to behave in a certain way, and Christians who are willing to forego fortunes, and, and, and Christians who are willing to give up social status in order to worship, uh, worship the triune God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, People say, oh my goodness, this is, this is foolish because if you are you know, worshiping what might be true, you're missing out on all the pleasures that you know you could have right now. Interesting, as a side note, this is the exact same logic that the, the philosopher Pascal is going to use, though he comes to the exact opposite conclusion. Pascal is actually going to say, well, if eternity might be true, then it's better to act as if eternity is certain and that God is a certainty because you certainly don't want to miss out on eternity. The last one, the last accusation against Christians is that Christians were subversive to the state. And I will say there's some merit to this accusation. The merit to this accusation comes in in the fact that many early Christians refused military service. And in Roman society, if you had people that refused military service and also refused to worship the emperor, which is seen as an act of patriotism, then what you're going to have is a threat to the status quo and a threat to the state. We've already talked about that when we talked about persecution in the early church. 
So let's turn our attention now to the early Christians who begin making arguments in defense of the faith. There's two Christians that we have enough information about in the second century of Christianity to talk about them as individual apologists. But let's also talk about an early Christian document that is laying out a defense for the faith. It's called the Letter to Diognetus. And it's a letter that we don't know a lot about in terms of the identity of Diognetus or the identity of the author. The author refers to himself throughout the letter simply as Methetes. But what becomes clear as you read the letter is that the author, Methetes, which is just the Greek word for disciple, knows someone named Diognetus. And he knows this person is open to listening about the Christian faith. And so what he does is he lays out an argument for what Christianity is actually about so that Diognetus would be more open to understanding the faith and ultimately that Diognetus himself might come to the faith. So this is something that we have. This is an excerpt from the letter to Diognetus. The author says, I ask of God who supplieth both the speaking and the hearing to us, that it may be granted to myself to speak in such a way, and that thou mayest be made better by the hearing, and to thee that thou mayest so listen, that I, the speaker, may not be disappointed. I find a lot of helpful context in this, because what we have from this early work of Christian apology is a Christian saying, I believe that this is truth, and if you're willing to hear it, I want to tell you. I'm going to be better for it, for being able to talk to you, because I know you'll listen, and I believe you'll be better for it by listening to what I have to say. That's a powerful model for us. Let's talk about a couple of other early Christian apologists. And again, just remember, apologists are those who defend the faith. One early Christian apologist, really the earliest individual that we can hone in on who is defined by his apologetic work, is someone named Justin. We would refer to him as Justin Martyr. Justin was born in Samaria, actually modern-day West Bank, part of the Palestinian territories. And Justin writes a few significant works from the second century. So again, second century, we're talking about the 100s AD. He writes two works that are called simply the Apologies because they're defenses of the faith. Then he also writes a work called the Dialogue with Trypho. He understands a high degree of what we call continuity between Greek philosophy and Christian doctrine. Here's all that means. Justin says, because I understand a lot about Greek philosophy, that's enabled me to see the truth in Christianity. Justin was a follower, before he became a Christian, of a type of philosophy that was called Platonic, or actually Neoplatonic philosophy. We don't have time to get into all that that philosophy entailed, but it is important to know that it's an important way of thinking especially in Christian theology in the early church, not only in the first and second century, but all the way through the time of Augustine and other Christian thinkers. So Justin uses this Greek philosophy to help engage Greeks and, and those from the, the Greco-Roman world with the truth of Christianity and the truth of the gospel. 
we need to tie in what we talked about on the last episode with Christian persecution here. Remember that in Christian persecution, the way that things begin to happen in these inactive periods of persecution is that Christians might not be actively sought after, but if someone accuses you of being a Christian, you can be hauled before the authorities and you can be killed. Why would that come up with Justin? Well, according to the testimony of Justin's student, Tatian, who we'll talk about in just a moment, Justin had a debate with another non-Christian philosopher named Crescens. And Justin was widely thought to have bested Crescens in this debate. In other words, Justin showed that Christianity was rational and was superior in its truth claims to the philosophy of Crescens. Well, Crescens allegedly responded by turning Justin in as a Christian. Justin was called before the authorities with some of his Christian companions, and Justin was executed. So we were reminded that these early apologists are not just guys that are out looking for an argument. They're not speaking from a position of their own ego. They're instead brave people who are literally putting their lives on the line to address misconceptions about Christianity out of love for their non-Christian neighbors that they might hear the gospel. A student of Justin's who we've already mentioned, Tatian, is another early apologist. Tatian is going to have two major works um, that come to us from antiquity. One is the Address Against the Greeks, and this is exactly what it sounds like. Tatian is going to lay out his understanding of why Christianity, and and really more than that, the Judeo-Christian tradition, so the biblical witness, the Old and New Testaments, lay out a superior tradition than the tradition of Greek culture and Greek religion. So that's one of his works. The other work that he has is called the Diatessaron. That's a harmony of the four Gospels. It takes the Gospel passages, shows how they agree with one another, and lays them out in a certain chronology, showing how the passages fit together. That work also has some additional passages that are included with it, where Tatian is going to lay out some more of his philosophy and theology, just his broader understanding of the Christian faith. Now, I want us to note a couple of things about Justin and Tatian. Even though Tatian is Justin's student, he studies under Justin when Justin comes and teaches in Rome, Tatian is also going to take a very different approach to how he does apologetics, how he defends the Christian faith, than Justin. And I think this difference is instructive for us because we see this same tension in the way we defend Christianity today. Justin is going to take an approach to defending the faith that says if we understand Greco-Roman philosophy, I keep using that phrase Greco-Roman, Just understand that means the mixture of Greek and Roman culture that was dominant in the second century. Justin says, if I understand the best of their philosophers, I'm going to be able to present Christianity in a way that is compelling. That's clearly unique to his background as someone who's introduced to philosophy before he's introduced to the faith. Tatian, however, is going to take a different approach. Tatian is going to say, 
why would I want to deal with Greek philosophy? Why would I want to be informed about Greek culture? Greek philosophy is wrong. Greek culture is wrong. Greek culture is not morally equivalent to what is laid out in the scriptures and what Christians believe. So Tatian is going to take an approach that shows the superiority of Christ over culture, while Justin is going to take an approach that is going to say, this is how you can see the superiority of Christ through culture. I find that interesting because we still have that exact same dialogue happening today. I want to be clear. There's no evidence that Justin and Tatian at any point argue about these different approaches. But instead, what we find is when we examine their writings, we see that difference in approach. And it's a difference that continues to mark a lot of approaches to sharing Christians' faith today, especially Christians who are kind of having this discussion in a more academic realm of how ought we to share our faith. There are those that say, throw out culture, it's wrong, it's broken. And there's others that say, no, we have to plug in through the culture. We have to plug in through philosophical and scientific ideas. So the debate continues to rage on 1,800 years after Justin Martyr and Tatian are defending the faith in the second century. All right, let's, let's now turn very quickly to understanding how the early Christian apologists are going to answer the common objections and misconceptions of the Christian faith. So against cannibalism, this one's relatively easy. They simply discuss what's actually happening in the Eucharist. Now, we're not entirely certain how the early church understands the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper, in, the, in communion. But what we do know is they're very clear that they're not sacrificing someone. There's no victim. There's no actual human flesh being consumed and human blood being consumed in the communion celebration. So we need to, we need to understand that. We need to see that that's how they answered the objections of some skeptics of Christianity in the second century. They said, nope, we promise you, it's all bread and it's all wine. Whatever they think happens to the bread and wine once the service starts, that's a different story. But they're very clear on understanding and helping others understand that there's no victim, there's no uh, human flesh being consumed in the ceremony. Second, uh, against the accusation of sexual immorality, they're actually going to point to the moral superiority of Christian scriptures, particularly over pagan literature, especially Greco-Roman literature. They're going to say, listen, look at our scriptures and then look at Greek mythology. Look at the writing of some of your philosophers. Honestly, who do you think has a more virtuous system? Especially if you're going to say our system is leading to debauchery, uh, you really don't have a leg to stand on because your scriptures, or not scriptures, but a lot of your religious stories and writings of philosophers are going to advocate a certain type of sexual licentiousness where Christianity has a very well-defined boundary of sexuality only being practiced in marriage between man and woman. Next, against the charge of atheism, they are actually going to quote ancient Greek philosophers who admit that the Greek gods 
are of human invention. And for this, you can go back especially to Plato. At least that the Greek gods are a human expansion. Um, Plato actually has the idea that there has to be one supreme being, and all the other stories are just kind of trying to explain that truth. Um, so Christians are going to say, listen, we're not atheists. Actually, you're the atheist because your best thoughts have shown that these gods can exist. You don't really live like they exist. And so you're worshiping made-up idols that you pretend are real. We don't have idols, but I actually believe that our God is real. Against the charge that they are being risky by not... Uh, living for the pleasures of this world and instead trusting in a resurrection that may or may not happen. They say, listen, look at creation. If God created what did not exist, certainly he has the capability to resurrect what is dead. So no, we have good reason to believe in the resurrection. Therefore, we have good reason to live the way we do. Against the accusations that Christians were subversive to the government, Christians say, well, listen, it is true that we're not going to bow before the emperor, but why should that be a requirement to being a good citizen? Actually, our scriptures are going to point us towards following the government, being obedient to the government, as long as the government doesn't call us to do what is unjust. So by pointing people to scriptures like Romans chapter 13, Christians actually make the argument that they could be model citizens. So, so this is how the early Christian apologists are going to answer the misconceptions and the false beliefs about Christianity. I want to make just a couple of notes on this before we close about how this is applicable to us today. Number one, I want to point to the fact that early Christian apologists defend the faith. They're not attacking others. So what we see with Justin and Tatian, what we see modeled in the letter to Diognetus is not an attack. Instead, what we see is a response. So what we have modeled in the early church, at least in these writings, is we have modeled people saying there's false beliefs about Christianity. Let me show you what Christians actually believe. This is a, a powerful thing for Christians today to consider as we continue the task of defending the faith. It's a reminder that defending the faith is not about attacking others, but is instead about saying, no, let me invite you to consider the truth of Christianity. There's a, a relevant example that's come out just this weekend. As I record this, there's been an article that was published in Harvard Magazine. That's not an influential magazine, by the way. It's an internal magazine at Harvard University. But in that magazine, there's an article that's gotten a lot of coverage, especially on social media, because it says some really terrible things about homeschooling, but Christian homeschooling, and more particularly, conservative evangelical Christian homeschooling in, in particular. That article says some things that are simply and foundationally untrue. It makes the claim that Christian homeschooling and evangelical homeschooling to a large degree is fueled by religious extremists who are white supremacists and child abusers. That claim is perpetuated in the article. 
Now, let's consider how Christians need to respond to that. This hits home for a lot of Christians. Most Christians in an evangelical congregation are going to know at least one and probably more homeschooling families. This is especially close to home for me because my wife and I homeschool our children. So how do we respond to these accusations? We have to be very careful to fight the temptation of entering into a culture war, of saying, this is why you're terrible, and instead saying, this is what is true. This is the counter to what you are claiming. And then it's not wrong to bring up the fact that Perhaps this, these are the real reasons why you're citing information that doesn't correspond with truth. But we present truth in this way to invite people to consider the truth of Christianity. Remember, the, the goal is not to prove other people wrong, and the goal is not to prove that we are right. The goal is to invite people to understand that Christianity is true. And that Christianity is a story that is the true story of all human history. And that God is graciously inviting those outside the faith to come into the faith and join the story through the grace poured out in Jesus Christ. That's the message that Justin and Tatian proclaim. That's the message that Christians are called to proclaim. and The types of dialogues we're called to enter into today. Thank you for listening to the Transform podcast. Transformed is a resource provided by Shorter University, a Christian liberal arts university in Rome, Georgia. For more resources provided by Transformed, including podcast episodes, book reviews, and articles, check out transform.shorter.edu. For more information on Shorter University, go to shorter.edu. Tune in next week as we continue to discuss early church history and its implications on biblical worldview.